Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you ask them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. It's February the 3rd, 1975. The national radio broadcast in Egypt is interrupted by Quranic verses, a sign that someone significant has died. Cafes across the country are packed with people. Taxi cabs pull over, their speakers blaring for anyone within earshot. In every home, families crowd round the radio, waiting to hear the news. Just as soon as the announcer says her name, Egypt's empty streets flood with millions of wailing mourners. They grieve over a woman named Umm Kulthum, widely known as the Star of the East, the legendary singer and a national treasure who captured the soul of the region for nearly six decades. To this day, her music is heard across the Middle East and among the diaspora, but her influence spreads much further. Around the world, she's inspired superstars like Bob Dylan, Bono, Robert Plant, Shakira and Beyoncé. Her song, Walazaman Ya Silahi, was the national anthem of Egypt for nearly two decades. But she had plenty of trouble to go along with all her success. Her love life was a mess, and she was embroiled in controversies that threatened to derail her career from being on the wrong side of political upheaval to suspicions of murder. Um Kulthum sang through it all. But while her talent enchanted millions from villagers to monarchs, her ironclad hold over her public image left many wondering, who was the woman behind the celebrity? Did she truly rise to fame on her talent? Or was she a pawn used for political gain? I was born around 1904 in a small village along the Nile Delta called Tamay al-Zahira. My family was not wealthy, far from it. My father was a hard-working man and a devout Muslim. He was the local imam, a type of spiritual leader in our village. For years, I would watch him take my older brother Khalid out to sing for people on holidays and at weddings to earn extra money. I was desperate to sing with them. Uncle Thum was perhaps too young to understand that it wasn't considered appropriate for a Muslim girl, much less an imam's daughter, to perform in public. Nevertheless, Uncle Thum asserted her independence at an early age when she demanded to be sent to Qatab, the local Islamic school her brother had attended. Her passion won her parents over. They agreed to send her, even though it wasn't the norm for girls in her village to receive an education. 
The first thing we learned at school was how to memorize and recite verses from the Quran. There's a rhythm to it, so it comes out more like a song. I've always been good at figuring out how to get what I want. And I wanted to sing with my brother and father in public. So, I eavesdropped on their rehearsals and learned all the songs they sang. Then I would follow them around the house, singing it back to them to show them what I knew. <laughs> I surprised my father. My voice was strong and clear, even as a child. I could see him slowly starting to consider letting me join them. At 12 years old, Um Kulthum officially began singing in the group alongside her brother. But as she got older, her father grew concerned about her singing with a group of boys and men. But Um Kulthum's voice was undeniable. She was the family star. So, my father came up with a plan. I could continue singing in the group, but only if I disguised myself in boys' clothes. Baba sent me to rummage through Khaled's closet to find some of his old clothes, and we hid my long black hair under a head wrap. My first performance disguised as a boy was terrifying. I could have sworn everyone was staring right at me, whispering, Pit, Pit, girl, girl. But then, Something magical happened. I looked out into the crowd and saw them swaying from side to side. They were too consumed by the singing to notice a girl hiding in plain sight. Done right, the recitation of Quranic verses could move a listener into a state of devotional ecstasy. It's a skill Um Kulthum would go on to master. Seeing the budding young singer's talent, a wealthy aristocrat by the name of Sheikh Abu Alila Muhammad approached Um Kulthum's father, requesting a private concert for guests at his home. Her singing moved the audience to tears, and the enterprising Sheikh decided it might be wise to invest in Um Kulthum. He would go on to become a mentor and teacher to Um Kulthum throughout her teens. He paid for her singing lessons and encouraged her to build up a repertoire of popular folk songs so she could be more relatable. He also acted like an agent and arranged concerts for her among his elite circle of friends. She was the talk of the town among Egyptian aristocracy. Um Kulthum's performances earned her family money hand over fist. She was happy to help support her family. But her father maintained a tight grip of her earnings and image, too. I tried to show Baba that I knew well enough to avoid things like being seen with a strange man in public by myself. But no amount of modesty was going to spare me from the embarrassment I suffered at the hand of the rich ladies. They would just stare at me from across the room, whispering loud enough for everyone to hear. They were ruthless. But the joke was on them. The second I opened my mouth, 
they shot theirs. After the performance, these women flocked to me. Uh. By her late teens, Um Kulthum had been introduced to a new wealthy benefactor by the name of Amin al-Mahdi. He tried to convince Um Kulthum to take her act to the big city, Cairo. But her father was dead set against it. I couldn't believe, after all the requests I got for my singing, after all the money I made, that my father was so short-sighted. Oh, Baba, I'm not going there to live some bohemian lifestyle. I will make enough money to take care of the whole family. But my father was stubborn and conservative. I knew it was useless for me to try and convince him. So I asked Amin to help me. He introduced me to his nieces, who were around my age. They took me under their wing and even gave me dresses to wear when I performed to help me fit in. Amin would invite his friends from Cairo to hear me sing, and afterwards he'd ask them to speak with my father. It worked. Um Kulthum won her independence, and in her early 20s, she headed to the big city. Among the promising young artists in Al-Marghi's circle was the romantic poet Ahmed Rami, who had just returned to Egypt from studying in Paris. Ahmed was handsome and very humble. His dedication to poetry impressed me. Before I moved to Cairo, I mostly sang Quranic verses and folk songs. So when Ahmed suggested that I sing some of his poetry, I jumped on the idea. We worked extremely well together. It was during this period that he wrote the first poem for me to sing. It was called, If I Were to Forgive. Forget and have pity on me. I try, but I find it hard. That song put me on the map. Ahmed's poetry inspired me to change my singing style. I was drawn to the tender ballads he wrote. Um Kulthum's arrival in Cairo in 1923 came at a promising time in the nation's history. Egypt had just gotten out from under British colonial rule. As Egyptians reveled in their newfound independence, so did young Um Kulthum. Egypt's most talented poets and composers were clamoring to work with her. That led to her first recording contract in 1926. It was around this time that she was introduced to a very popular Egyptian composer and virtuoso oud player named Mohammed Alasubki. Working with Ahmed helped to put me on the map, but I knew working with Mohammed, my career could skyrocket. We experimented with our performances. What if we made our performances a little bit more intimate. What if we moved the string players up front, just behind me, and made them part of the show? By making these musicians a part of the show, my performances felt more grand, but also more intimate, because that little grouping of us at the front of the stage somehow made even the biggest concert hall feel like a private performance. By the mid-1920s, Um Kulthum had made several recordings and developed a more polished musical style. 
Her personal style had evolved, too, but her rising fame made her feel the need to transform even more. I could still hear those whispers in my ears. Sure, I had a more sophisticated look now, but I still felt out of place compared to the high society women I performed for. Muhammad taught me that I needed to present myself as the whole package in order to take my career to the next level. So I paid close attention to what fashionable women wore. I wanted long gowns with elegant sleeves. I wanted fabrics, lace and silks of the highest quality. I like this gown. The other one was too flashy. This one is just right. I had my hair pulled back into an updo and put a little rouge on my cheeks and lips. The one true extravagance I allowed myself was a sparkling brooch. When it all came together, I could hardly believe the woman staring back in the mirror was me. Though Um Kulthum maintained a conservative image, her nod to modern fashion and music trends won her many eager fans, even from the upper echelons of Egyptian society. The 1930s saw the rise of three inventions that were critical to Um Kulthum's success. Film, radio and the phonograph. Her voice and face would soon be broadcast across the country and beyond. I was one of the first people whose music was aired on Egypt's national radio station. I wasn't a fan of the idea initially, but when I heard that one of my rivals, a popular singer named Muhammad Abdel Wahab, was having his songs broadcast, Well, I wasn't about to let him get ahead of me. By 1932, Um Kulthum's record sales were so high, she embarked on a major tour across the Middle East and North Africa, drawing huge crowds in capital cities from Damascus to Tripoli. And in 1937, she signed a landmark deal to perform live concerts on the first Thursday of every month, a prime spot since Thursdays are the start of the weekend in many Muslim countries. These concerts were broadcast live over the radio, and it was reported that the whole country ground to a halt the minute Um Kulthum's voice hit the airwaves. To this day, her fans reminisce how they would be yelled at by their grandparents for daring to change the dial when Um Kulthum was on. I wouldn't say I got nervous before concerts, but there were always those few moments just before I stepped out onto the stage when I could hear my heart beating in my ears. I'd take a deep breath in. Think of God. And ask him to watch over me as I performed. I started holding a silk scarf in my hand to help ground me and to soak up the clamminess in my palms. It helped that it looked dramatic on stage, too. When the music began, my heart slowed and my worries melted away from the first note. <laughs> <laughs> 
My favorite part of any performance was when the audience would call out to me. I would sing some scales and then I'd hear someone yell encore and if the mood felt right, I would give them what they wanted. It felt like it could go on forever. A single song could go on for anywhere between 90 minutes to five hours. Like a jazz virtuoso, Um Kulthum could improvise on seemingly any piece of music, her voice being the instrument. By the 1940s, Um Kulthum was also known for her movies. She starred in six films which were released during a period known as the Golden Age of Egyptian cinema. As with most things she did, Um Kulthum chose her characters strategically, often accepting roles that cast her as a good-natured village girl. In those films, I could sing the music I grew up singing, Quranic verses and old songs by caravan drivers. One of my most famous songs came from one of my movies, Salama. It had such a catchy tune, I would find myself humming it all the time, even years later. Um Kulthum was seemingly on top of the world, but she wasn't untouchable. This one time, I had teamed up with the composer Ahmad Sabri al-Nagridi on a song called Wantonness and Dissipation. I was used to working with world-class talents by that point. My approach back then was for each of us to stay in our lane. The writer writes, the composer composes, and the singer sings. End of story. I guess that's why I didn't realize the first line of the song, wantonness and dissipation are my religion, would be a problem. There is only one faith, one God. And here I am, suggesting otherwise. My fans were outraged. I was mortified. For the first time in her career, Um Kulthum faced serious backlash. Was her growing popularity beginning to cloud her judgment? Or was it just an innocent mistake? Either way, Um Kulthum wasted no time in fixing what had become a PR nightmare. This is Um Kulthum. You need to pull every record I have out right now. I want a total recall of this song. The incident left a scar on Um Kulthum. From then on, she was fanatical about controlling her image and what was shared about her in the press. She was known to handpick journalists and dictate headlines to them, whether about new song releases or her personal life. Though Um Kulthum was good at controlling her public image, within the industry there was speculation that she was deeply envious of her competitors, especially a rising young star named Asmahan. My dear Asmahan, with those sparkling green eyes. Whenever we would see each other at salons, at concerts, she used to say, sing for me, Um Kulthum, sing for me. They said that she was in a car on the way to Mansura. The roads were empty, but somehow the car crossed the median and crashed into the canal. The driver escaped. Asmahan drowned. 
After she died, there were rumors that she was an international spy killed on her way to a rendezvous. That was only one of the rumors. The other was that Umm Kulthum, unable to cope with Asmahan's popularity, had put out a hit on her. It was crazy. I said a prayer for Asmahan that night so she may rest in peace. And I prayed that those sick rumors would go away. By the early 1950s, it seemed that the whole of Egypt was head over heels for Umm Kulthum. Umm Kulthum had gotten used to hobnobbing with Egypt's elite over the years, including members of the royal family. The young King Farouk often invited her to perform private concerts at the palace. But in 1952, Farouk's reign came to a swift end in a revolution led by Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser and an officer named Mohammed Naguib. As the country's government took a decidedly anti-monarchist turn, the Egyptian Musicians Guild banned Umm Kulthum's performances and radio broadcasts for close to a year, on the basis that she bore allegiance to the royal family. Music was my entire life, and I was being silenced. It was one of the lowest points of my life. However, Umm Kulthum would soon find a new friend, Egypt's new leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was elected president in 1956. One of his first orders of business was to reverse the music union's decision to ban Umm Kulthum's music. I heard that Nasser had said something like, are they crazy? Do they want Egypt to turn against us? It serves those old fools at the Musicians Guild right. I have never put politics ahead of the public. I belonged to the people, not the government. Umm Kulthum's political motivations would be questioned throughout her life and after. People conflated her singing for the royal family with an allegiance to the monarchy, and so they distrusted her supporting Nasser, one of the men who led the coup against the king. Was she simply loyal to whomever was in power? Or did Egypt's leaders use her popularity to boost their own? Perhaps it was both. I'm a singer, not a politician. I just want to inspire and unite my people. And President Nasser gave me a chance to do that again. With my music back on the air, my Thursday radio broadcasts meant more than ever. They gave me a renewed purpose. I started to see myself as more than just a singer. I felt like a public servant. And it was the highest distinction when one of my songs became the national anthem of Egypt. Umm Kulthum's ability to navigate political upheaval allowed her fame to grow, but she wasn't quite as deft at managing her personal life. I wouldn't say that finding a husband to marry wasn't something I wanted. There were many men who loved me. Back when King Farouk was in power, Umm Kulthum received a marriage proposal from Farouk's uncle. Though many men confessed their love to her in vain, this was actually a proposal she seriously entertained. Only to be told that the offer was rescinded because the family was against the union. 
Supposedly, she wasn't from the right kind of background for the monarchy. Apparently, singing for and marrying into the monarchy require a different set of standards. Oh, my heart was like a spinning top in those days, but I never relayed my romantic life to my fans. What her fans also didn't know was that Um Kulthum's health took a sudden and sharp turn for the worse. One time, I woke up in the middle of the night, gasping for breath. I panicked, but it only made it worse. I was rushed to the hospital. My chest was hurting. I, I'd never been so terrified in my life. They diagnosed me with inflammation of the lungs. I was horrified. My lungs. I lay awake the whole night, alone in my room, wondering what would become of me if I could never sing again. Um Kulthum flew to the U.S. to get treatment, and miraculously only had to stop performing for a few weeks. Soon after, though, she suffered from a severe inflammation of the eyes, a result of her near-constant exposure to bright stage lights. Rather than scale back on performing, Um Kulthum began wearing rhinestone-rimmed sunglasses on stage. It became her signature look. The remarkable thing is... Throughout her tumultuous romantic life and health issues, there wasn't a single headline about it. A testament to the star's media savviness. And so no one saw this relationship coming. I married Dr. Hassan Al-Hifnawi. He was dedicated to his patients, not his ambitions. Her marriage to the good doctor was far from typical. Um Kulthum was in her late 50s, and her husband was about a decade younger. Al-Hifnawi was also divorced, with two children from his previous marriage. But Um Kulthum was willing to break with her conservative upbringing. What was great about Hassan and I was that we focused on our own careers, and we never competed with one another. And at home, he would take care of me. I often felt ill and tired, but I could always muster the energy to sing and perform. That was my life, and by the 1960s, I was happy with what I'd achieved. I wasn't looking to make any changes. Until my old rival, Muhammad Abdel Wahab, came knocking. He was the one who had all those hit songs at the same time as I did when we launched our radio careers 30 years before. I wasn't keen on working with him. Once a rival, always a rival. But Muhammad was integrating a more Western style of music into his work. And when he shared this one song with me, I was hooked. I had hit songs before, but there was something magical, alchemical about Inta Omri. You're my life. Inta Omri was more than a hit song. It ushered in the second coming of Um Kulthum's popularity. Before performing in Ta'umri, in front of a live audience for the first time, I waited backstage and once again said a prayer. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. 
I clasped my handkerchief tightly to steady myself and adjusted my sunglasses. I had loved the song so much. I hoped the audience would too. You're my life. I sang in the Umri for more than two hours. I was carried by the audience's love and energy. One of the lyrics in the song says, so much of my life is gone. And I was starting to really feel that. I was in my 60s. I was sick more often than not. But the chance to sing songs like Inta Umri kept me going. Towards the end of her life, Um Kulthum began to pursue a new purpose a self-imposed role as the ambassador for Egyptian culture and public morale. In 1967, Egypt was defeated in the Six-Day War against Israel. It was a blow to the nation's confidence and to President Gamal Abdel Nasser. It was time to take the show on the road. The Arab community needed me. They needed to be reminded of Nasser's vision of pan-Arab unity, and now more than ever. That coming from someone whom, for decades, roundly rejected any and all rumors that her performances were politically motivated. I did another concert tour through the Middle East and North Africa. Our troops had risked their lives for us. I could barely look at our military generals when I sang Hadith al-Ruh, Talk of the Soul. Um Kulthum held a diplomatic passport whilst traveling. If that's not an indication of her political status, I don't know what is. She also routinely sent her earnings from the tour back to the Egyptian treasury. It was estimated that she raised somewhere in the region of two million Egyptian pounds for the military. Curious about the nationalist star with the incredible voice, the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, invited Um Kulthum to perform in Paris. On November the 14th, 1967, Um Kulthum performed at the famous Parisian concert hall, the Olympia. No one can describe the extent of my pride when I went to Paris and raised my voice in the name of Egypt. The biggest compliment I received was when Monsieur de Gaulle referred to me as the lady. It reminded me how far I had come. During the last years of my life, the only touring I had been doing was going back and forth between Egypt, London, and the US to see different doctors and specialists. I was always sick, always exhausted. I once got a kidney infection that was so bad, I had to go to London to get treated, even though I was just gearing up to debut a new song. Before I left, I asked Saleh Jaudat to write me a poem about Egypt and the October War. And then when I came back, I asked Riyad al-Sumbati to compose music for it. The song was called A Night in Love, and it would be my last. It was fitting, I suppose. 
The song is basically a love letter to the Egyptian people. I performed it at a concert in November 1972. I felt quite faint during that performance, but I finished the night out as I always do. Um Kulthum never performed again and spent the remaining years of her life struggling with her declining health. She died of heart failure on February the 3rd, 1975. To this day, festivals are held in Um Kulthum's name. Her music is played in cafes and restaurants all over Egypt, competing with today's hottest pop stars. There's even a street named after her in Jerusalem. More than four decades after her passing, many Egyptians claim to know Um Kulthum's music as intimately as they know themselves. I was happy to have left this world knowing I was able to reach the hearts of so many with my voice. Old, young, rich, poor, Arabs and foreigners alike. Music is a language the whole world understands. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is director Chris Kelly, series producers Lauren Berkowitz and Michael Tanko Grand, co-producer Jody Camilleri, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Lima Alize. Story editing by Michael Tanko Grand. Um Kulthum is played by Serene Sabah. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Additional editing by Max Collins. Sound engineered and recorded by Vaudeville Sound. Associate producer Nessa Arif. Translation by Abdullah Al-Masalam. Special thanks to Dr. Ahmed El-Masri. Research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Joy Lee. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Hala Sudani is Al Jazeera's senior copy editor. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer of podcasts. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.